everyone, and welcome to The Odo Approach, a podcast created by medical students for medical students to teach you about all things otolaryngology. I'm your host, Aileen, and today we're going to talk about chronic rhinosinusitis. Tag along for a discussion about this common presentation in otolaryngology and family medicine. Rhinosinusitis broadly refers to inflammation of the mucosa in the paranasal sinuses in the nose. Hence its name, rhino, refers to nose, sinus refers to the sinuses, and itis refers to inflammation. Rhinosinusitis can be subclassified into acute, subacute, and chronic. Acute refers to rhinosinusitis, which is less than four weeks. Subacute is lasting four to less than 12 weeks, and chronic is lasting for greater than or equal to 12 weeks. Chronic rhinosinusitis is the focus of this episode. Chronic rhinosinusitis, also known as CRS, is a common condition with an estimated prevalence of around 10% in the population. CRS is also found to have a detrimental impact on the physical and mental health of patients and results in increased healthcare resource utilization. In fact, a study by Metzen has shown that patients with CRS report worse social functioning and pain control than patients with back pain, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, angina, and congestive heart failure. So before diving deeper into CRS, let's just review some anatomy. The nose is structured superiorly by the nasal bones and inferiorly by the upper and lower cartilages. Inside the nose, the nasal cavity is divided by the nasal septum. The nasal septum is made up of cartilaginous and bony septum with overlying mucosa. The bony aspects of the septum are vomer, palatine crest, perpendicular plate of the ethmoid bone, and maxillary crest. The quadrangular cartilage makes up the cartilaginous septum anteriorly. The roof of the nasal cavity is the skull base, specifically the cribriform plate of the ethmoid bone. The paranasal sinuses are found in the bones of the face and the skull, and they surround and drain into the nasal cavities. The paranasal sinuses function to decrease the weight of the skull, increase resonance of the voice, and provide immunological defense. There are four pairs of paranasal sinuses named after the bones that house them, the frontal, sphenoid, maxillary, and ethmoid sinuses. They each have openings within the meatuses of the nose, otherwise known as the ostium, to allow drainage of the fluid of the nose. Meatuses of the nose are drainage passageways from the sinuses, which are housed by the turbinates. In both nasal cavities, there are usually three nasal turbinates that look a bit like shelves, the superior, middle, and inferior turbinates. Some patients may have an incidental finding of a supreme nasal turbinate. The nasal turbinates project from the lateral nasal cavity walls, and their primary function is to warm and humidify the air entering the nose. The sphenoid and posterior ethmoid sinuses drain into the sphenoethmoidal recess near the back of the nasal cavity. The ethmoid infundibulum is a three-dimensional pyramidal shape that facilitates drainage of the maxillary, anterior ethmoid, and frontal sinuses in the middle meatus. The hiatus semilunaris is a two-dimensional gap that empties the ethmoid infundibulum. The unsnit process is a projection of the ethmoid bone and protects the opening of the sinuses in the middle meatus. Overall, the region of the ostea, or openings of the anterior ethmoid maxillary frontal sinuses, is termed the osteomeatal complex. Finally, the nasolacrimal duct drains into the inferior meatus. Hasner's valve protects the opening of the nasolacrimal duct into the inferior meatus. The nose and paranasal sinuses are lined by pseudostratified keratinized columnar epithelium, otherwise known as respiratory epithelium. CRS is inflammation of the nose and the paranasal sinuses. The pathogenesis of this inflammation is still being studied, but contributing factors appear to be multifactorial. It's hypothesized that impaired mucociliary clearance, sinonasal epithelial barrier abnormalities, tissue remodeling, and host immune responses all play a role. It's important to note that CRS is typically not an acute infection that was unsuccessfully treated. CRS can broadly be separated into two categories, CRS with and without polyposis. 
Many more phenotypes of CRS exist, but are out of the scope of this podcast. For the medical student level, the broad separation of CRS is with and without polyposis. Nasal polyps are benign outgrowths of the nasal and paranasal mucosa that can significantly impact patients' function and quality of life. The treatment options differ depending on the presence and absence of polyps. However, polyps are beginning to further be subclassified based on the clinical picture and pathological findings of the polyps. These are described as the phenotype and endotype, respectively. The presence of nasal polyps can change the treatment pathway for patients with CRS, but we'll get into that a bit later. So how do we diagnose CRS? There are a variety of criteria, but many Canadian otolaryngologists will use the 2011 Canadian guidelines, which provided the mnemonic C-PODS. C-PODS stands for congestion, facial pressure or pain, nasal obstruction or blockage, purulent anterior or posterior nasal drainage, and change in sense of smell. To diagnose CRS, the patient must have at least two C-PODS symptoms for at least eight weeks, and at least one of these must be either the O or the D, obstruction or discharge. In addition, the objective finding of sinus-slash-nose inflammation upon nasal endoscopy or commuted tomography, or CT, is required. Endoscopy is typically completed in the otolaryngology clinic using flexible nasopharyngoscopy. It's important to consider patient comfort while ensuring proper visualization. Clinicians will have different tactics to achieve this, varying from lubrication of the scope, nasal decongestion prior to endoscopy, often with Otrevin or metazoline, and or topical lidocaine analgesia sprays. The attending physician will typically perform nasopharyngoscopy, and this allows for opportunities for medical students to view various anatomy. As medical students become more comfortable, the physician may allow them to perform endoscopy under direct supervision. In the nasal cavity, look for septal deviations, bony spurs, and turbinate hypertrophy. Inferior turbinate hypertrophy is a very common finding in patients with CRS. Assess the external and internal nasal valve areas. These are the opening of the nostril and the opening into the nasal cavity just past the nasal hairs. Inside the nasal cavity, look for nasal obstruction, mucopurulent debris, and erythematous and edematous, otherwise inflamed, nasal mucosa. Also look at the sinus drainage, looking for obvious signs of inflammation or obstruction. Look for signs of bleeding or septal perforations. Finally, look for polyps. Polyps look like pale, fleshy pouches of tissue that are often described as looking like peeled grapes. They are most commonly seen in the middle meatus and can be found in the nasal cavity in more severe cases. The finding of polyps can change the management of CRS and is therefore important to identify. The Lund-McKay scoring system can be used to assess CT scans of the paranasal sinuses and osteomiatal complex. Each sinus, frontal, anterior, ethmoid, posterior ethmoid, maxillary, and sphenoid, and the osteomiatal complex are assigned a score from 0 to 2. 0 is no abnormalities or opacification, 1 is partial opacification, and 2 is complete opacification. Each side is scored separately and a combined score of 24 is possible. Patients presenting with CRS will commonly present with a long-standing history of breathing concerns. It's important to take a detailed head and neck history. Start with OPQRST questions in your HPI. Onset, precipitating factors, relieving factors, quality, radiation, severity, time frame. Of course, don't forget to ask the diagnostic CPODS questions mentioned earlier. Precipitating and relieving factors can be especially important as they can identify potential triggers that bring on or worsen symptoms. Ask if it's intermittent or constant, uni or bilateral. Ask if they snore or have consistent tearing. Ask what patients have tried so far to help their symptoms and what effect it's had. How did they tolerate previous treatments? Along these lines, it's important to take a good medical history asking about allergies, current medications, previous and current medical conditions, and previous surgery or trauma, specifically in the head and neck areas. Seasonal allergies can worsen CRS symptoms. 
There are also medical conditions that can predispose patients to CRS, such as asthma and cystic fibrosis. In fact, asthma and CRS are highly correlated. A study has reported that 88% of patients with mild to moderate asthma have sinus CT abnormalities consistent with CRS, and 70% have symptoms considered consistent with CRS. In patients with severe asthma, these numbers increase to 100% with CT findings and 74% with CRS symptoms. It's thought that asthma and CRS are associated because they are both inflammatory conditions of the respiratory tract. The unified airway theory, or one airway, one disease, suggests that respiratory tract is not separated into partitions, but rather it's one functional unit. As such, it's thought that the pathophysiology behind the inflammatory disease of the respiratory tract, such as asthma and CRS, are not individual and separate, but rather are linked through the unified airway. When asking about medications, inquire about over-the-counter nasal decongestant use. Patients often assume anything over-the-counter is safe to use as much as needed, when in reality, these medications can actually make symptoms worse with rebound vasodilation, and patients can become dependent on these medications. This condition is called rhinitis medicamentosa. To prevent rhinitis medicamentosa, duration of topical decongestant use is recommended to be less than three to five days. Social history is vital in the assessment of a patient with CRS. Asking about their environment, both at home and at work, is important. Ask about dust exposure, the heating system, do they have carpets or flooring, what kind of pillows do they use, do they have any pets? Further, ask about smoking or vaping habits or exposures to secondhand smoke. The use of recreational drugs and alcohol is also important, especially recreational drugs which are ingested intranasally, such as cocaine. It's also important to ask about family history and their past experiences with CRS. A family history of allergies or other medical conditions can provide helpful information to guide treatment and identify contributing allergens. For patients with CRS, it's extremely important to assess how the condition is affecting the patient's quality of life through five questions, which are feelings, ideas, function, and expectations, because the management approach is partly driven by how limiting the condition is to the individual. On physical exam, look for external signs of head and neck trauma. Check the bridge of the nose for deviation, step deformity, or signs of a previous fracture. Perform anterior rhinoscopy to look for mucosal inflammation, inferior turbinate hypertrophy, nasal polyps, or septal deviations or perforations. Watch the patient breathe. Occlude each nostril individually and watch them breathe again. Observe for internal or external nasal valve collapse or obstruction. It's important to complete a full head and neck exam by examining the ear, ear canal, and tympanic membrane, palpating the head and neck for masses, and examining the subsites of the oral cavity and oral pharynx. Finally, nasopharyngoscopy should be performed as described earlier in the diagnostic criteria. Treatment of CRS typically follows a latter approach, going from least to most invasive. First-line treatment is typically avoidance of irritants such as smoke, dust, and allergens, along with nasal saline lavage. One step above this on the ladder is the addition of intranasal corticosteroid sprays such as mometasone or nasonex. Topical or oral antihistamines can also be prescribed if there's a suspected allergic component to the patient's presentation. Pediatric patients with CRS symptoms may also be referred for allergy testing. Moving up the ladder again is the use of budesonide or palmicort nebuamps. These can be mixed into nasal saline lavage for regular use, most commonly once or twice daily for ongoing maintenance therapy. Nasal steroid irrigations provide greater distribution of the corticosteroid throughout the nasal cavity and sinuses than steroid sprays, which results in better relief of CRS. The final medical option varies depending on if the patient with CRS has it with or without polyposis. A short course of systemic antibiotics can be prescribed for patients suffering from CRS without polyposis, or a short course of oral steroids can be prescribed for patients suffering from CRS with polyposis. 
If medical intervention does not provide symptomatic relief, surgical intervention may be appropriate. Functional endoscopic sinus surgery, otherwise known as FES, is typically used to treat chronic rhinosinusitis. FES is a minimally invasive technique that has revolutionized the field of sinus and nasal cavity surgeries. FES is typically performed by an otolaryngologist under general anesthesia using a rigid endoscope. However, there is a growing field of doing endoscopic sinus surgery under local anesthesia, which may be especially beneficial for patients with contraindications to general anesthesia or comorbidities that predispose them to a greater risk related to general anesthesia. During sinus surgery, the sinus ossea are widened to improve drainage from the sinuses. The main goals are to open up the nasal cavity and sinuses to maximize the exposure of nasal mucosa to steroid irrigations to reestablish ventilation and improve mucociliary clearance to the paranasal sinuses. The degree of surgery and the sinuses which are addressed is determined on a case-by-case basis. Operation on the frontal sinuses is more challenging and has a greater risk of complications. Operation on the frontal sinuses is classified by the giraffe criteria. Giraffe 1 is an anterior ethmoidectomy with exposure of frontal sinus outflow tract. Giraffe 2A is the frontal sinusotomy with the removal of agar nasi and frontal recess cells exposing frontal sinus osteum between lamina propritia and middle turbinate. Draft 2B is the removal of the head of the middle turbinate and widening frontal sinus osseum from lamina propritia to septum. Draft 3 is the removal of the entire floor of the frontal sinus, intersinus septum, and anterosuperior nasal septum. Preoperatively, it's important to inform the patient of the risks and benefits of FES, especially to facilitate informed consent. As with any surgery, FES has the risks of general anesthesia, bleeding, and infection. With FES, instruments are often used near the skull base and orbital cavities. As such, there is a risk of cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, leak through damage to the cribriform plate. Along with this, there's a rare risk of infection spreading to the brain, resulting in meningitis. Clear fluids seen draining during surgery should make you suspicious of a CSF leak, and this can be repaired with grafts intraoperatively. There's also a risk of damage to the structures within the orbital cavity. Damage to the optic nerve can cause blindness. Penetration of the orbital fat can cause a retrobulbar hematoma. Retrobulbar or preceptal emphysema may occur from microfracturing the lamina propritia. Diplopia or double vision can occur due to extraocular eye muscle injury. And epiphora or excessive tear formation can result from injury to the nasolacrimal duct system. Finally, important arteries live around the nose and paranasal sinuses, and damage to these can cause major hemorrhage. Specifically at risk is the anterior ethmoid, posterior ethmoid, sphenopalatine, and carotid arteries. Damage to the carotid artery is very rare, but very severe, and it requires urgent management. To reduce the risk of these serious complications, intraoperative image guidance systems have been used for sinus surgeons. These systems work as a GPS navigation system to guide sinus surgery, giving surgeons the ability to track their instruments in the nasal cavity with real-time correlation with the patient's preoperative CT scan. The CLOSE checklist is a systematic approach to CT evaluation pre-FES slash endoscopic skull-based surgery. C stands for cribriform plate, which is typically assessed using the Karos classification. The Karos classification classifies the depth of the olfactory fossa based on the height of the lateral lamella of the cribriform plate. The deeper the olfactory fossa, the higher the Karos classification, which means more of the thinner parts of the cribriform plate are exposed, resulting in a higher risk of trauma to the skull base. Karos type 1 has a depth of 1 to 3 millimeters, type 2 has a depth of 4 to 7 millimeters, and type 3 has a depth of 8 to 16 millimeters. L stands for lamina propritia, the thin bone separating the orbit of the nasal sinuses. You are assessing for remote orbital fractures, orbital prolapse into the ethmoid sinus, 
the unsnip process and its attachment site, and the presence of halo cells. Haler cells are ethmoid air cells lateral to the maxillo-ethmoidal suture line along the inferomedial orbital floor. Their presence can result in inadvertent entry into the orbit if not properly recognized preoperatively. O stands for anoidy cells. An anoidy air cell is a sphenoethmoidal air cell, an anatomical variant. These air cells, if present, lie in close proximity to the optic nerve and internal carotid artery. S stands for sphenoid sinus pneumatization. It's important to identify the pneumatization pattern of the sphenoid sinus, the conchal, precellar, or cellar, and identify carotid canal or optic nerve dehiscence. Finally, E stands for anterior ethmoidal artery. Look to identify the ethmoidal notch and the presence of supraorbital pneumatization. FES has reported outcomes ranging from approximately 80 to 90% in the literature. However, patient education is crucial to the success of FES. Reestablishment of mucociliary clearance and sinus drainage allows pathways for increased penetrance or access of intranasal saline lavage and corticosteroids. Patient adherence with medical management can significantly impact perceived outcomes of FES. Now time for some clinical pearls. Biologic therapy and research for use in CRS patients has been a developing field in recent years. It's been increasingly recognized that type 2 immune responses may contribute to the pathophysiology of CRS. These immune responses have shown the ability to respond to biologics in other disease states. These biologic therapies may play a significant role in the treatment of CRS patients, specifically in those with polyposis, in the near future. In fact, the Rhinology Working Group of the Canadian Society of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery recently released consensus statements guidelines for the use of biologics in patients with CRS. It's important to be aware of variations in patient presentation. For example, aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease, or AERD, is defined by SAMTERS triad as asthma, nasal polyps, and allergy to aspirin. This is a more severe form of CRS, which is more challenging to treat. Different treatment modalities along with those mentioned earlier can be employed for these patients. Aspirin desensitization therapy where patients are exposed to increasingly higher doses of aspirin in a controlled setting is a unique treatment for AERD which can be beneficial for these patients. Unilateral rhinosinusitis symptoms should prompt you to consider other causes including but not limited to paranasal tumors, odontogenic etiology, often due to periapical abscess of the maxillary molars and fungal involvement, potentially a fungal ball, or mycetoma. Rhinosinusitis is common in untreated HIV patients who are at increased risk of invasive fungal sinusitis. Further, acute sinusitis is commonly caused by viral pathogens and can be self-limiting. However, acute bacterial sinusitis and acute frontal sinusitis can have severe complications resulting from intracranial and intraorbital spread of infection. These topics regarding acute sinusitis and associated complications will be covered in a future episode. Thank you to Kalpesh Hathi for developing this script. We would like to extend our sincerest thanks to the St. John Regional Hospital Department of Surgery within the Horizon Health Network for their very generous support. We hope you'll tune into our next episode and thank you so much for listening today. Please head to our website at www.theodoapproach.com for our show notes and to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with our latest episodes.